This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. My name is Sharif Syed. I'm one of the abdominal transplant surgeons here at UCSF. Um, the, the field of transplantation has evolved with astonishing speed. Since the first successful transplant in the world, a kidney transplant performed in the 1950s, um, the, as recently as in the 1980s, the one-year survival for a liver transplant was only 20%. Today, that survival rate has risen to around 96% at our center. With advances in surgical technique and improved drugs to prevent infection and rejection, organ transplantation is now recognized as one of the most effective treatments for many diseases. The results are often transformational for our patients. Yet despite the outcomes, there are far fewer organs available than people who need them. Many people die each day waiting for an organ transplant. Addressing the shortage of organ donors is a research area that is a high priority. And there are a lot of ways that the transplant community have been working to reduce this discordance. Living donation, pet exchanges, and machine perfusion, just to list a few, are ways that we have been working to reduce this. UCSF transplant teams have been national leaders for around 20 years and continue to lead the way on many fronts, including implementation of new technologies, as well as ethical organ allocation to give access to all those who need it. Dr. Nancy Asher, who will be speaking tonight, needs no introduction. However, it's customary to do so, and I'll try. Dr. Asher was born and raised in Michigan. She attended college and medical school there also. She went on to train in surgery and in transplantation at the University of Minnesota, where she rose to prominence and was ultimately recruited to UCSF to start the liver transplant program here. She is known as the first woman to perform a liver transplant. Over the last 30 years, not only has she built an incredible transplant program, but she has also chaired the Department of Surgery and developed it into a national leader. She has advised on landmark national and international transplant-related legislature and is a past president of both the National and International Transplant Societies. Though listing all of these accomplishments is clearly impressive, it does not do her justice. One of her greatest legacies are the innumerable individuals she has, she has before and continues to educate, inspire and empower. I have been incredibly fortunate to be one of these individuals. She has unmatchable energy and a great deal of humility. She has incredible insight and surely she talks the talk, but also walks the walk. And that brings us to her talk tonight. After spending her career transplanting organs, Dr. Asher found herself on the other side of the surgical drape when she donated her kidney to her sister. Dr. Asher, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to share some of your experiences. Thank you, Sharif. Um, that was such a nice introduction. And uh, I want to tell the audience how appreciative I am 
that I can address you. So today, I'm going to wear two different hats, if you will allow me. First, I'm going to talk to you in a more comfortable position, and that's of a transplant surgeon, someone who has been in the field a really long time, someone who kind of knows what's going on. But then I also want to talk to you as a patient and as an organ donor. Um, so when we think about uh, how we keep up with the organ shortage, a key issue is whether or not we're willing to actually put ourselves on the line to think about being an organ donor. Uh, so as Sharif said, I've spent a long time in the field of transplantation and it isn't lost on me, the irony that at some point in my life, I had to decide whether or not I would be an organ donor or not. And I wanna share that with you. Um, I think for us to understand, I got the hat on of the transplant professional first, if you don't mind. So for us to understand the crisis in transplantation, we need to understand the issues of supply and demand. And we simply don't have enough organs for the people who need them. So if you look at the cause of death throughout the world and compare uh, the current causes of death to the causes of death 20 years ago, you can see that more and more people die from non-communicable diseases. Now, I realize that we have just been through or are still going through COVID. So clearly that's an infectious disease and has caused many, many unnecessary deaths. But aside from that infectious disease, if you look across the world, particularly in developed countries, you will see that chronic heart disease, chronic liver disease, chronic kidney disease are increasingly the reasons that people die. And those diseases can be uh, treated with transplantation. You don't just have to die. You can look at the prevalence of chronic kidney disease. This uh, ranges uh, between 5% in the Netherlands up to 24% uh, in Saudi Arabia. And you can see that in the US, the prevalence of chronic kidney disease is 14%, which means that 46 million people in the United States suffer from chronic uh, kidney disease, which is a giant number. If you look at people who have chronic liver disease uh, across the world, it's quite remarkable. Two billion people with hepatitis B infection history, 200 million with hepatitis C, 150 million with alcohol, and the newest kid on the block, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, over 600 million people. So these numbers are giant. And if you look at death in the Americas, the United States, this is the top 10 cause of death. So you can see that ischemic heart disease is number one and cirrhosis is number 10. Diabetes, number nine, uh, a very frequent cause of chronic kidney disease. The same is true in all of the Americas. I'm showing you Mexico as an example where ischemic heart disease is number one, chronic kidney disease is number three, diabetes number two, and cirrhosis number four. So this is pervasive throughout the world, the need, the potential need for organ replacement. So if you actually do the math and you look around the world, you will see that there are potentially 10 million people who could benefit from a kidney transplant. Five, somewhere around 5 million who could benefit from a liver transplant. The heart may be up to 18 million. We don't know about the lung and we don't know about the pancreas. Now, this next slide shows you the data of 
the world's experience doing transplants in the year 2020. And you can see that there were only, there was only a total of 130,000 transplants done in that year. I've told you that there are really tens of millions of people who die with organ failure. So this means that what we're doing with transplant is meeting actually not less than 10%, less than 1% of the global needs. So that's really the issue we're talking about. The same is true in the United States. It's not just uh, across the world that we're looking at it. You can also look at it in the United States, where nearly 100 million people are awaiting kidney transplant uh, at the end of December 2020, with 37,000 added to the waiting list in 2020, and uh, a, an average daily addition of over 100 people. The success part of it, the other part of the equation, the supply part of it, is the number of transplants for that 100,000. You can see 23, almost 24,000 kidney transplants done in 2020. 18,000 of them were from deceased donors, but 5,000 were from living donors. And that, of course, is what I'm advocating and talking about tonight. The problem, of course, is with all those people waiting, about 5,000 of them died waiting on the waiting list with 13 patients per day dying on the waiting list, and nearly 4,000 people removed for being too sick to undergo transplant. So we have a giant problem. And one way to solve that problem is for us all to potentially step forward uh, to be an organ donor uh, while we're alive, not waiting until we are a deceased donor. And of course, that's an easy thing to say. It's a much more difficult thing to do very difficult for me, but I want to share my story with you. So I feel I'm showing you this slide to talk about your purpose and reason for, for being. And uh, this is a Japanese expression. I find that I am very fortunate because my profession, my vocation, my passion, and my mission kind of all come together in this field of transplantation. So that makes me feel fantastic. When I was going to medical school, I wanted to pick a field that would um, be interesting to me, not just in five years, not just in 10 years, but in 30 years. I wanted to still be interested in, in coming to work. And now more than 40 years after I've chosen this field, I still am totally committed and interested in doing transplantation. You know, many of my colleagues from medical school, um, you know, they were already complaining about the hours or they were complaining about um, uh, the, the balance of their lives, you know, what they should really be doing. They were thinking about going into other fields, but I was really fortunate because I picked the right thing for me. So um, I don't mean to gross anybody out uh, at dinner time. This is a, a photo of a liver transplant being done. Liver transplant is like an opera or a symphony. It's incredible how beautiful this operation is. Right now, I've been involved doing uh, the live donors for living-related liver transplant, which is amazing in and of itself. The fact that you can take a portion of a liver out of a live donor and give it to another person, and the piece of liver that remains in the donor, which you see here, grows to normal size over a few weeks. And the piece of liver that we put into the recipient 
grows to normal size over a, a few months. So it's it's a miracle and it's so wonderful that we're able to do it. Um, I also think that doing a kidney transplant is like a little concerto. So I am so fortunate that I have picked this field and uh, and been able to practice uh, in this field for the last 40 years. I, I really pinch myself and consider myself so lucky. But for me to tell you uh, about uh, my journey as a kidney donor, I need to tell you about my family. So now I stop being a professional and I start talking to you about personal things that happened in my family uh, because everybody's got a story like this. So uh, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, this is me on the right. Uh, and this is my sister, Sheila. And she was my um, my kidney recipient. This is our aunt and we're in, we're in our backyard. Sheila was five years older than me uh, and, uh, and a pretty good big sister. In addition to me, I'm a little bit older here. I had an older brother, Bill, who was two years older, and then a younger sister, Jane, who was uh, three years younger than me. So there were four kids. Sheila was the oldest, then Bill, then me, then Jane. And uh, in our family, uh, Sheila was the oldest, Jane was the youngest, Bill was the only boy, so I was the third. So there wasn't much expected of me, which was fine. Nonetheless, I felt very competitive. Uh, Sheila uh, was reading Shakespeare when she was 10 years old. Uh, Jane was reading our parents' books when she was four years old. Uh, Bill, uh, he wasn't such a, a whiz at reading. However, he made um, he doubled his allowance because he played Scrabble with my mother every day and they played for money. So he was able to uh, capitalize on that and did uh, really, and did really, really well. But it was a competitive family. Um, uh, that's how I was raised. So again, here's Sheila uh, at a, a family wedding. You can see the big Jewish family. Um, then there's Bill, uh, who looks a little bit uh, like he doesn't know what's going on. There's Jane, and there's me uh, in the corner. And as I said, the four of us were very competitive. Um, this is my mother. She was a school teacher and she believed strongly in family. She used to tell us that your family was your best, closest friends and that those relationships were absolutely key. Uh, this is my dad. He was a doctor. So my mother, uh, in addition to um, pushing the idea of how strong, how important family was, uh, thought that our education was also important. And she took us every single week to the Detroit Art Institute uh, to educate us about art. So this is uh, Diego Rivera's very famous mural that's in the Detroit Art Institute. I think this is what uh, fostered my interest and my siblings' interest in art too. Uh, this is Peter Bruegel, the elder. Uh, this is called The Wedding Dance. And again, it, is, um, uh, it was an inspiration uh, to us. Now, my father, I told you he was a physician and he encouraged our competitiveness, but he also encouraged the notion of service. He felt it was very important that whatever jobs we did related to service. So uh, I think we got that message. My sister Sheila became a teacher in the inner city Detroit, a sixth grade teacher, which was pretty tough. My sister uh, Jane became a special education teacher for uh, disabled children. My brother, Bill, became a political science and is an academician 
Uh, he was first at Duke and now he is at um, Claremont McKenna. And of course, I picked um, uh, medicine, which uh, delighted my father. It kind of worried my mother because she wanted me to have, she wanted to make sure that she had children. Uh, when I picked transplant surgery, they were also supportive, uh, but uh, it was a little bit more taxing. Now, I, um, I actually knew about transplant well before I chose it as a field. So uh, when I uh, was going to undergraduate, I had an older cousin, her name was Judy Asher, and she, um, she was actually a first-year medical student at the University of Michigan, which is where I was in, an undergrad. Uh, she was an outstanding student, and she was a, a, a feminist. Uh, you know, she was uh, uh, an early advocate for women going to medical school. So I really admired her. Um, when we heard that she, you know, she commuted from Detroit to Ann Arbor for medical school and got into an automobile accident, this is in 1968. Uh, and when we heard that she was in the hospital, I remember I drove my father to the hospital to see her. She was in a coma and the doctors told my father, who was her uncle, that she would not recover. Uh, my father was an allergist, so he was, you know, he was a good doctor, but he wasn't used to dealing with patients in the hospital. And he didn't really know about this brain death thing that people were talking about, just starting to talk about. But he tried to digest and give the information to his brother, her father, so that uh, her father could make the decision about whether or not she should be an organ donor. And in fact, my cousin was an organ donor in uh, 1967, which is really remarkable because the whole Harvard uh, ad hoc committee uh, that determined the definition of brain death, the irreversible coma from which patients do not recover was just being, you know, that information was just being disseminated in the United States. Uh, and my father uh, actually looked into it so that he could advise his brother about what to do. My father also stated that he felt really bad, even though my uncle decided for her to be an organ donor. My dad felt so bad because he was worried about the outcome and he was right. This is the early data. Uh, from transplants in the 60s in the United States. So this is just under, just when I'm becoming conscious of transplant. And you can see that the best results are from identical mono, uh, I, identical twins uh, at the top. Uh, and you can see the results from uh, deceased donors down here, 30% three-month survival. And in fact, my dad was right about my uh, cousin's kidneys one of the recipients uh, died at three months and the other one uh, uh, lost the kidney. So even though she was a young, perfect donor, um, we, there was a bad, bad result. So now let's fast forward to uh, 25 years. Uh, I had fantastic surgical training at the University of Minnesota. This is uh, uh, John Nigerian, who's a giant in the field of transplantation. This is me, and we're actually doing Jamie Fisk's liver transplant. Uh, at, after this uh, um, training, though, I and after I graduated, I decided to move to California to start a liver transplant program. Uh, and I rose through the ranks here uh, and became uh, and and became chair of the Department of Surgery. 
after our move to Northern California, uh, my husband and our move, my sister Jane moved to California in the uh, 1990s. And Bill's family, my brother, also moved to California, uh, in Southern California, around year 2000. So then Jane got ill. My older sister got ill. And my younger sister urged her to move to California. Sheila was ill and depressed. And Jane wanted to take care of her. Now, I wasn't so enthusiastic about the notion of doing that because I was running a department of surgery. I was busy with the transplant program. And I was raising uh, my family. Um, uh, the transplant program was going well, uh, but I wasn't really thinking about what was going on with my sister. Now, I need to tell you something about Sheila as well. So this is uh, a picture of Sheila when she got married, and she was completely normal, what we thought was completely normal at this, um, at this juncture. Uh, that's Sheila in the middle, that's me, uh, and that's Jane. Uh, as Sheila got older, though, she got more and more uh, odd. Uh, she became a hoarder and uh, became uh, more and more withdrawn. She had always been antisocial and somewhat reclusive, uh, but she became a, a shut-in. When it came time to move her apartment from Detroit to uh, California, we couldn't salvage anything from her apartment because she had cats and um, she had half-eaten food throughout the apartment and uh, cat excrement that filled the place. So we had to throw everything out. We also realized when she moved to California that she had chronic kidney disease. So this is Sheila after she moved to California. Uh, that's Sheila, that's Jane, my younger sister, and that's me uh, when she moved. Her routine was limited. She took daily trips to the coffee house. She did beating work. Uh, and her amazing appetite for books, which started, of course, with Shakespeare when she was young. Her body was limited, but her brain still worked. She averaged eight books per week. So she was really, really bright. Uh, if you met her, you would have no idea that she had such demons. She seemed like a bookish eccentric. Um, she took on working two afternoons per week at the local museum gift shop uh, and uh, made some friends, including her weekly Mahjong partners. At first, Jane had Sheila live with her, uh, but they had so many arguments that Jane ended up helping Sheila obtain an apartment in town with Jane overseeing her collecting. That's what Sheila called her hoarding. I'm a collector, so I'm actually quite sensitive to the distinction between collecting and hoarding. Um, Jane also helped her with her grocery shopping and cleared out the apartment every few months when the collections and the garbage began to pile up. Exercise had never been a, an important element in Sheila's life and she was obese. She was four foot 11 and 240 pounds. She looked like one of those white haired fairies in the Sleeping Beauty, only not so friendly. She gave up smoking when she moved to California, but the 50 pack plus pack years took its toll. She had recurrent bronchitis. Now I'm sharing those details not uh, to get your sympathy or your judgment. I'm sharing them to help frame how complicated family medical decisions can be. For two years, Sheila was stable. She volunteered, made friends, taught Jane Mahjong, had weekly dinners with Jane and Tom, and came to San Francisco for holidays. 
but our hundred stairs up to our house was quite taxing for her. But then things changed. She started to experience intense nausea. She couldn't take a 15-minute car ride without throwing up, and recurrent bouts of bronchitis became more frequent. Her little bit of physical activity decreased even more. It was clear that she was heading toward dialysis. The doctors had told us, the nephrologist had told us that she might have three or four years uh, before she needed dialysis, but it looked like things were uh, progressing much quicker than that. So discussions began what to do about Sheila, a 65-year-old Caucasian female, BMI greater than 40, relatively immobile. At the end of that year, she had a GI bleed. Her doctors were reluctant to give her blood because they thought it might sensitize her and uh, get in the way of a transplant. Uh, She ended up having a myocardial infarction and got blood anyway. She also underwent a carotid surgery um, to clean out her blood vessel in anticipation of a transplant. My brother, Bill, who you met before, who is a political scientist now, was an ABO match, and he stepped forward despite the objections of his wife and his daughter. His wife was concerned for his health. She had just retired, and he was continuing to support two of his three children and his grandchild. She argued that Sheila had never taken any interest in her own health and was relatively non-compliant with medications and exercise. But my brother would hear none of it. He, uh, Jane, the caretaker, the caregiver, she was also willing to be a donor, but she was blood type B, uh, Sheila was blood type A, and the exchanges that Dr. Syed talked about a few minutes ago hadn't yet come into existence. I have to admit one thing to you. I was relieved when my brother stepped forward. Um, I realized that I was the reasonable alternative because I was uh, ABO compatible. And although I had always seen myself as a feminist, I felt delighted that he made this macho gesture. After all, he was the man of the family. He, um, the only son, the prodigal son, the cachet of which he had ridden for many years. He gallantly stepped forward to save his older sister. His wife suggested that perhaps I, as the physician, could could talk to him to try to dissuade him. After all, she argued, Sheila might not get long-term benefit. I sympathized with my sister-in-law, but I felt my brother had a pretty good understanding of the issues, although he may have been blinded by his braveness. I admit that at a time like this, it is difficult to be data-driven. But the data supported the transplant decision. The obese patient, and that's what is shown here, is still advantaged whether they get a deceased donor or, and they're particularly advantaged if they get a live donor compared uh, to what would happen if she stayed on the waiting list. So it uh, was a, at least it was the decision that was made was supported by information. We were also concerned about what it might mean for my brother, because you know there is a very small incidence of the development of renal failure in organ donors. My brother uh, was at that time uh, 63 years old. He was running 30 miles a week. Uh, Although he was older and male, he uh, he had a low BMI uh, and his chance of developing renal failure we felt 
was pretty, uh, pretty low. But the whole, um, these machinations that we were making, should we, should we inform Bill? Should we let him do it? They all came to nothing because during his workup, he was found to have uh, a prostate cancer. And the doctors who were involved in his tra potential transplant, are my UCSF colleagues, refused him as a donor. Now, he put up a big argument about it, but they decided that it wasn't in his best interest. So suddenly we had two patients. Bill underwent his prostatectomy in, in San Francisco and stayed at our house for us to uh, care for him. Of course, then it dawned on me that not only was I next in line, but that unlike Jane, I was ABO compatible. I have to say that the mix and change of emotions that I felt was remarkable. I passed through some modification of the Kubler-Ross stages. First, disbelief, then realization, fear, claustrophobia, and then calm, a process that ended in a few days with acceptance when I decided that I would donate. Actually, there was no more consideration of the literature. There was no consideration of literature, of data at all, as I took the mindset of so many donors I've met who are considering donation of, a, of their kidney or part of their liver, uh, they just, you know, they make the decision. Risk seems much less important than the potential benefit to a loved one. The transition for me from to acceptance occurred over days, not months. Was I coerced? I can't really answer that. I was so surprised by my own leap of faith to go through with this, that I believe this transition is the same for most living donors. The decision is an emotional one, not, a, not an intellectual one. I picked my surgeon and uh, Sheila's surgeon and our anesthesiologists. I picked the date of Friday and a university holiday so that we there would be fewer people around and we could recover over the weekend. But I didn't ask my family's permission. When my 19-year-old daughter volunteered to take my place as the donor, it drove home to me how difficult informed consent is for somebody who just wants to help a loved one. So we decided on preemptive transplant. That means that you do transplants before the transplant before someone needs to go on dialysis. Uh, this is relatively common with the use, this can be common with the use of live donors and it was um, about 16% of the transplants in the year that this happened, 2010. I didn't feel like Sheila needed the experience of dialysis to appreciate a kidney transplant. The interesting thing though, is when my brother was thinking about being the donor when he was still acceptable, he would call her every single day. He would say to her, Sheila, you have to exercise, or Sheila, you have to promise that you'll take your medicine. And so it seemed to me that the way he was giving his gift his gift came with a price tag and the price tag was her compliance. I didn't feel that way. I felt like once I gave the gift, it was what you know she could do with it, what she wanted. And so that for me was incredibly liberating because I wasn't going to hold her accountable for what happened. And that was fantastic. My preoperative kidney function was great. So that was great. It turned out, however, that I had two, um, uh, two arteries going to my kidneys on both sides. So that made it a little bit more uh, complicated. I also, uh, they also decided to do my right kidney. Uh, so that made it more complicated for the surgeon. So this is data on whether or not you use 
multiple arteries or one artery. And you can see that the patient survival and the, and the graft function rate are both the same, whether or not use one, if you have two arteries or one artery. But I wasn't paying attention to this data. This uh, slide shows you that whether or not you take the right kidney or the left kidney doesn't really make any difference. The, uh, the survival for patients and the graft survival is also the same. This next slide uh, is a teeny bit narcissistic, but it's my own CT scan with my, with my uh, two kidneys. And you can see my two arteries right here. So the surgeon decided to take the right one because uh, it was likely that I had a longer vein going to this, uh, to this kidney. And uh, he thought he could do the operation pretty quickly. Although my family didn't try to talk me out of being a donor, most of the few people I told had negative reactions. The dean wanted to know if the department, because I was department chair, was in order. And the hospital CEO offered that it might be irresponsible for me to donate since so many people depended on me and something might go wrong. I just stopped letting people know so that I wouldn't have these negative reactions. I had only one moment of insanity, total irrationality prior to my surgery. The few days before the surgery, I had an image in my mind of my colleagues putting Foley catheter in my bladder in the operating room. And the image bothered me so much that on the day of the surgery, I put my own Foley catheter in with a mirror and went to the hospital with the Foley catheter in place. Uh, so, uh, no one said anything to me to give me a hard time about that, and I, uh, and I was very appreciative that they, that they didn't. I'm also convinced that I was a pretty good patient. I took a full liquid diet the entire week prior to my surgery and kept up with my daily exercise routine. Currently, I'm addicted to Peloton, but in those days, I uh, did um, the daily elliptical, and I was uh, quite fit when I went in for surgery. So on Three, on March 26, 2010, at age 60, I underwent a laparoscopic right nephrectomy, two arteries and two veins. I was back in my room by two and walking by four. The perimeter of the transplant floor is one thirteenth of a mile. Patients are rewarded if you go around 13 times with a t-shirt. So I walked three, three miles on day zero, the day of my surgery, and five miles on post-op day number one. I couldn't figure out why the other patients weren't walking with me. And the few that I saw, I encouraged to walk. It didn't take me long for me to realize that for me, narcotics, um, that the nausea that I experienced with a, a dose of narcotics was worse than any pain. So I stopped the narcotics after only one dose on post-op day zero. I insisted on being discharged on post-op day number one to go home. I thought the plan would be for Sheila to follow soon. At the time of discharge, I was only taking sips of fluid because everything tasted bad. But I thought I would recover more quickly in my own home, in my own bed. Over the next few days, my pain decreased, but my nausea increased. And I began vomiting. I could eat, but I really had no appetite. And invariably, after I ate, I would throw up. I received IV hydration at home, despite the urging of my husband. The last thing I wanted to do was to return to the hospital as that seemed like a defeat. Two days later, when the vomiting became nonstop, it was finally clear to me 
that something was wrong. So I went back to the hospital. Evidently, I had been a bad patient. Here is a CT scan, my CT scan, and here is what the problem is. I had a hernia, a little piece of bowel snuck out through one of the port sites of my laparoscopic uh, surgery. So I required an additional surgery to solve this problem. The complication actually had not occurred in the entire UCSF experience of hundreds of laparoscopic nephrectomies. My colleagues suggested that perhaps my overzealous activity uh, after surgery and the hundred steps up to my own house may have contributed to my hernia. Now for sure, I felt like one of the patients. I was no longer an academic. I was a patient uh, being a little bit, um, I, I felt in the in, uh, camaraderie with the patients uh, who feel a little disengaged from their, uh, from their healthcare uh, professionals. To everyone's relief, however, my recovery was straightforward after my second surgery. I was back to work at one week and back to doing, this is a, this is a list of the complications at UCSF, the first 1,000 laparoscopic uh, nephrectomies. You can see the incredibly low incidence of complications in this, in this patient group. Uh, and I unfortunately made this go up a little teeny bit, but it's still incredibly uh, a low rate of complication. Here is some information on how much uh, work people miss before and after surgery. And as I told you, I was back to work at two weeks after surgery uh, doing liver transplants. So I recovered very, very, very quickly. At the outset, uh, I had trouble talking about the experience. I felt tired, uh, but after 30 years in the field of transplant, we are pretty used to feeling tired. I also felt disengaged. Like many patients, I had to go inside myself uh, to get stronger and to, um, and, to, uh, and to recover. I was also concerned about my privacy, uh, but I don't know about you. I am a private person. Nonetheless, after a couple of weeks, I was able to talk about the experience. And after a couple of months, I was able to talk to patients about it. By three months, I think I couldn't help myself. Uh, when patients or their families came in for kidney transplant evaluations, expressed some reluctance uh, to, to, to ask or to talk to a potential donor, I would be called in like a pinch hitter. And I would explain that I had been a donor. And although parts of it were difficult, that I did well and would do it again. Invariably, they would ask how my sister was doing. And I was happy to say that she was fine. In the meantime, though, Sheila wasn't really fine. Although we felt she was better off than if she hadn't undergone transplant and ended up on dialysis. She broke down her wound and it required a plastic revision. Uh, she also developed a lung mass, uh, which required a resection, and it was a very low-grade adenocarcinoma. The immunosuppression did not agree with her, uh, and it took her about four months to adjust to the medicine. But almost magically, she was back to her routine. She began volunteering at the local hospitals, I mean, the local museum on Tuesdays and Friday. She went grocery shopping. She... Uh, she played Mahjong. I would try to see her briefly when she came for clinic, but she really didn't like the trip to San Francisco and would see her own doctor in Santa Rosa. She had, you know, it's interesting. She had never really formally asked me to be her donor and we really didn't speak about it, um, but we had come to peace about the whole thing. 
At our first and second year anniversaries, I silently congratulated myself. We had beaten the odds. Certainly, she was a high-risk candidate, but she avoided dialysis and now was back to her steady routine. And she seemed happy enough. Uh, this is us, uh, me and, and Sheila and Jane. Uh, Bill's not at this uh, family um, family event. Her asthma and her bronchitis were still a problem, but it didn't seem major. Her creatinine was 0.9, which is cold normal. I had resumed all my normal activities and had become even more negative about the use of pain medication in my patients and even more insistent on physical activity for the postoperative uh, patients. Uh, so when Jane called on November 16th, 2012, to tell me that Sheila had died, I couldn't even breathe. Uh, the Mahjong girls had gone to Sheila's house because it was Sheila's turn to uh, host uh, the game. And they became alarmed because no one answered the door. So they called the police and they found her inside and she had, she had passed. As we all know, life goes on. I took refuge in work. Unlike my cousin's death all those many years ago, I couldn't really make sense of Sheila's death. I reflected on what could have happened for a long time and what we could have done differently for, for her. For a while, I found that I could not talk to patients again. And I, um, because I was so frightened of the invariable question, how's your sister doing? I wondered whether transplant was perfect for her, whether we had pressured her or not. Uh, but she had expressed to Jane that it really had made her life great. After a while, I realized it was right for me to try to help her in the way that I could for what she needed at the time. And it was right for me to let go of the gift and not try to dictate how she lived. And I have resumed applying gentle pressure uh, to by telling my story to patients and their loved ones. Uh, I think it may be even more powerful to advocate for live donation in the face of a negative outcome as I explain my reasoning to my fellow patients. And I continue to encourage all my fellow patients to get going immediately after surgery. So um, I have written extensively about organ donation. I um, have written a lot about uh, how I feel that patients who donate their loved one organ, their loved one's organs are actually immortalizing their do the, the donor. I feel that with live donation, um, those people are, I've, I always felt those people were heroes or heroines. I actually don't feel like I was a heroine, but I felt like I did my best to try to help my sister. And I think uh, that's really all you can do. Um, so I, I leave you with those, those thoughts. Uh, I think the only way we can really address the incredible uh, shortage we have of organ donors is for many of us to step to the plate to be live donors. And I hope that you will consider that. I hope you will think about that. I hope you'll talk to your families about that. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Asher, for uh, you know an incredibly um, you know, an incredibly touching and honest uh, talk and 
I'm sure everyone really appreciated hearing your insights. Um, I want to uh, open up the questions from the from the from the crowd, um, and we've got a question regarding your. Um, you know, you spoke about how um, how um, your you had a rigorous sort of physical activity of elliptical and bike riding. You know, can you explain a little bit about your long-term activity changes or any changes that you noticed in either your job or in your uh, exercise after donation or if it didn't have any impact at all? Well, as you know, we urge all of our patients to become physically active before, um, even in the face of renal failure, in the face of uh, liver failure. Um, we encourage all our donors to be physically active. I was able to get back to my usual um, exercise routine within a couple of, within a month of donation. And I would say um, that it did not in the long term affect any of my exercise. Having said that, I'm older. So, you know, uh, if I slow down, it's because I'm older, not because, not because I only have one kidney. There's, you know, there's pretty good data that if you are fit, uh, going into this kind of surgery or going into any kind of surgery that you have a faster recovery and you're able to get back to, you know, your pre-surgery um, uh, exercise level. Thank you. You know, I, you know, as you were speaking, you shared your, um, you know, the, the different emotions that you felt as you were considering being a donor. And you talked about the complexities of um, family medical decision-making. Um, and you touched on how your own uh, counseling to patients and, and how difficult it is to really uh, have an informed consent prior to donation. You know, do you, is there, do you feel like the medical community do a good job of uh, informing um, donors about the, the risk or can they ever really get an understanding of all of these complexities? And, and if they can, how can they help patients? I think the best thing for um, patients, myself included, is to talk to other patients, to get a sense of what it's like to go through something, what the good parts are and what the potential bad parts are. Um, because in fact, when we're making these kinds of decisions, as I said, I don't think that they are intellectual decisions. I think they're emotional decisions. And I think we, with my other hat on, we as uh, surgeons um, and as doctors, we have to understand that. Um, so what we do, as you know, uh, Sharif, we, we have multiple conversations in an attempt to um, help people see the potential risks that they're undergoing. But it's really, really, really hard because patients don't want to listen. I didn't want to listen. You know, I really, uh, again, I just wanted to Thank you for an, you know, an incredible talk, uh, incredibly inspiring as always. And, um, uh, you know, I, I look forward to um, people being able to uh, view this and, and hopefully be inspired to, to donate and to help with the organ shortage. So thank you again, Dr. Asher. Thank you very much. I, I'm so appreciative to you, uh, Sharif, and to the audience. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. 
For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.